0: Morning. The text is from Luke 10, the verses 25 through 37. Let's read that together. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. After the sermon, we will sing from Hymn 28 to stanzas 4, 6, and 7. <coughs> Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, do you realize how hard it is to give someone insight into his behavior when he does not want that insight? That's next thing too impossible. For such a person is blind, and this is especially the case when he thinks that he is an expert in the very area in which he needs to be corrected. For he thinks that he has all the answers. He thinks that instead of him having to be corrected, it should be the other way around, namely that people should come to him for correction. After all, he's the expert. Such a person is certainly not receptive to instruction, especially not from someone whom he considers to be inferior to him. Man is proud and stubborn. He does not want to appear weak. He wants to be in control. He wants to maintain his dignity. And therefore, people do not easily change their minds about important beliefs they have held since youth. So then how do you get Person, such a person to get insight into himself? How do you make him change? Well, brothers and sisters, that was also the dilemma that the Lord Jesus faced when he encountered that expert in the law, that lawyer. He knew the law backwards and frontwards. He had studied the law all his life. He had had the best teachers you could find, and now he himself is a teacher of the law and he was highly respected because of his knowledge. And now someone like the Lord Jesus comes along who, in his opinion, is dead wrong about the law. It is totally opposite to what he taught. He is convinced that the Lord Jesus is a dangerous man and that he is a heretic. And for that reason, he challenges the Lord Jesus about the law. He wanted to trip him up. He wanted to expose him for the heretic that he was. And so he challenged the Lord Jesus about the law. Now, how do you convince such a man that he is the one who's got it all wrong? How do you give him insight? That is quite a challenge. And it is marvelous to see the Lord Jesus at work here, brothers and sisters, it is absolutely masterful the way that he handles this man. No one can rival his wisdom and skill. The conversation that the Lord Jesus had with this man is absolutely profound. Let us sit back and learn from the master himself. I've summarized the text as follows. to to you about the marvelous way in which the Lord Jesus teaches us how to love our neighbor as ourselves. And he does that by, in the first place, entering our world. In the second place, telling a simple story. And in the third place, giving us a most basic command. If you want to be able to correct someone, especially if you are dealing with someone with whom you do not have a relationship, especially a good relationship you first had better realize where that person is coming from. In other words, you better enter that person's world first, else you're going to be accomplishing very little. You will be at loggerheads with that person because there's two different worlds that are trying to merge, and you have to see how to get the one into the other. Now, look at how the Lord Jesus does that. He shows that in a way he deals with a lawyer who came to question him to put him to the test. For why does the lawyer want to put him to the test? Well, consider that within the context that this is told. The Lord Jesus had just finished speaking about what happens to those cities that would not listen to him. And then he had instructed the 70, he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent him. Now those are the words that he spoke to his disciples and to all around him. The disciples had seen him at work. They had heard the things that he had said and the things that he had done. And from his words and actions, they knew that this Jesus of Nazareth was a man sent from God. At this point, there are still quite a few things that they don't understand about his mission on earth, but that much they knew. They knew. They knew they had to listen to him and they knew that the same thing would happen to them as what would happen to those cities that did not listen to him. This lawyer didn't know that. From Christ's words, he concluded that Jesus was against the Jews, that he did not love them, and therefore that he did not keep the most basic law, the law of love. For he would condemn those who would not listen to him. And so the lawyer is convinced that Jesus is an imposter, a heretic, a dangerous man. And so in a clever way he wants to expose him and discredit him. And so he asks him a question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? First of all, note the way in which he addresses him. He calls him teacher. It's a title of respect. And the man also stands up. That is another show of respect. And he feigns this respect in order to disarm disarm him and in order to make the others think that he has some regard for him. The reality is, of course, that he has no regard for him at all. He holds him in contempt. The lawyer himself is convinced that he is the one who keeps all the laws and that he will, in spite of Christ's claims against those who will not listen to him or his disciples, that he will inherit eternal life. And so his question is designed to expose Jesus' false teachings. Lord Jesus is well aware, of course, of what is happening. He is very familiar with this man's belief system. He knows how he thinks. and This man sees himself as being righteous in himself because of the way that he conducts himself and because of his doctrine. That's already very evident from the question itself. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Isn't that actually a stupid and silly question? Think about it. How can you earn an inheritance? The question itself is already absurd. It's absurd. An inheritance is passed down from father to son. An inheritance is your birthright. As long as you remain a member in good standing of your family, then you will receive what is legally yours. An inheritance is never something you earn. And so, the natural thing, it would seem, for Jesus to do is to point that out to him. But the Lord Jesus doesn't do that for good reason. For you see, the Lord Jesus knows that this man is blind. He knows that he has invested his whole life in trying to earn his inheritance, in trying to earn his salvation. His whole career has been built on that. And You do not just change his way of thinking just like that. So what does the Lord Jesus do? Well, he takes a starting point in the lawyer's belief system. In other words, he enters his world, and he demolishes his world from the inside out, for he does not directly attack his point of view, for you see, that rarely works anyway. Look at how the Lord Jesus responds to the lawyer's question about inheritance. He asks him about what, according to him, the law states regarding the earning of eternal life. He says to him, What is written in the law? But he adds something to that. He also asks, How do you read this? Verse 26. In other words, Christ wants him to tell him not just what the Bible says, but how he, as a lawyer, interprets what the Bible says. For you see, the Jews are not just satisfied with the law of Moses. No, as we know, they want a further refinement of that law. They prescribed exactly under what circumstance a particular law was to be applied. And that is what they call the tradition of the elders. And they put that tradition of the elders on the same level as the Bible, as the law of Moses. And the answer that the lawyer gives is an interesting one. He gives him the summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. It appears that he has hit the nail right on the head. And you see that the Lord Jesus also acknowledges that for he says to him, you have answered correctly. But again, he adds a very significant phrase. And the meaning is not lost on the lawyer. This lawyer is not a stupid man. Jesus says, do this and you will live. You see, there is an implied criticism here. He is suggesting that the lawyer might not exactly be doing that. In other words, that he may be lacking in loving his neighbor as himself. And it is for that reason that the lawyer has to ask another question. The Lord Jesus leads him to that. And he asks the Lord Jesus who his neighbor is. It says in the text, he wants to justify himself. For this man is convinced that he is thoroughly keeping the law and therefore the summary of the law better than most other people in the whole world. Certainly better than the Lord Jesus who would have whole cities of his neighbors, of his fellow Jews, of his brothers destroyed because they would not listen to him. And he wants to force the Lord Jesus to come to that conclusion as well. The problem of course with the lawyer's approach is that he does not do what the lawyer does, namely to consider where the Lord Jesus is coming from. He is so convinced of the correctness of his own position that it doesn't even come up in his head to do that. As far as he is concerned, the correctness of his position should be evident to all. And so he expects the Lord Jesus to do what he would do when he would be asked such a question, and to give a list of all those who are your neighbor. For that is the way of the lawyers and the Pharisees. They love lists, and they love to make distinctions between people. They love to add and to elaborate on the law. He is so entrenched in his own way of thinking that he is convinced that the Lord Jesus will come up with a similar list as his for who, according to the Jew of that day, is one's neighbor. Well, the commandment to love one's neighbor as oneself is found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. And that is the text that the lawyer quoted. It is commanded within the context of one's brother. So the lawyers interpreted that passage to to refer to one's fellow Jews. Only a righteous Jew, is their conclusion, can be your neighbor. Foreigners and sinners cannot be your neighbor. Now the Lord Jesus is aware of his thinking. And he led the lawyer by the nose to get him to bring that very question. And this sets the stage for the Lord Jesus to bring him a step closer to the truth by means of a story. Stories are very powerful because they make you enter into your own world to understand. And again, the Lord Jesus is masterful. We come to the second point. The story that the Lord Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan is absolutely brilliant. It's very simple, and yet it is very profound. In answer to the lawyer's question, who one's neighbor is, the Lord Jesus tells him a story about a man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road that the Lord Jesus speaks about here is about 17 miles long, about 25 kilometers. It's a treacherous road, and the terrain is such that robbers can easily hide along it. And since this man was coming from Jerusalem, the audience would automatically conclude that this man would be a Jew. In the first place, it was in Jewish territory, and furthermore, people traveled to Jerusalem frequently because of the presence of the temple there. Anyway, while going along that road, this man was attacked, stripped, and beaten, and left for dead. The details here are quite important, for they show us that this man was left totally helpless and unidentifiable. He had been stripped of his clothing, and he was left as good as dead. From the Greek, it is clear that this man was beaten to within an inch of his life. And so he is also unconscious. Now, how do you normally identify people? Well, especially in the Middle East, you identify them by the kinds of clothes they wear. Each region had its own distinctive dress. You would also identify a person's social class by one's clothing. Well, this man lying here on the road to Jericho had no clothes. He was stripped of his clothes. How else do I identify someone? By his speech. Each region also had its own particular dialect. But this man who was robbed was unconscious. He could not speak. So anyone coming by on that road would not be able to tell what kind of person was lying there He would not know anything about his identity. He could even be a foreigner. And you see, now that was exactly the dilemma for the priest who was coming by. What is he to do now? The priest now becomes a victim of his own theological system, of his own false doctrine. For, in the first place... One thing he is not allowed to do is to touch a dead body. That's what the law of Moses says. To do so would render him unclean. But the Pharisees added many other stipulations to that law. According to the oral tradition, a devout Jew, in order not to be defiled, cannot be within four cubits of a dead man. It is for that reason that this man passes by on the other side of the road. Just in case he was dead, he did not want to be defiled. For do you know what an ordeal it would be for this priest to be if he were to be defiled? That would mean that he would have to go back to Jerusalem, and then he would have to go there through the purification process. And that process was time-consuming and costly, for it included the purchase of a red heifer, which would have to be reduced completely to ashes. And the ritual itself would take a whole week. And in second place, even if he was still alive, he was not even allowed to help. As we saw, a law-abiding Jew would only be allowed to help his neighbor. And that's a fellow Jew. And in this case, the priest does not know the identity of the man. He does not know whether he is a Jew or a foreigner. For one's foreigner, according to the tradition of the elders, is only, or one's neighbor, according to the tradition of the elders, is only a fellow countryman. Listen to what it says in the Apocrypha book of Sirach, which reflected the way they thought. It says in chapter 12 of that book, Give to the godly man, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back his bread and do not give it to him, lest by means of it he subdue you. For you will receive twice as much evil for all the good which you do to him. For the Most High also hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the good man, but do not help the sinner. Never trust your enemy, for like the rusting of copper, so is his wickedness. So that is what the Jews believed concerning one's neighbor. And so if this man was an enemy of the Jew, he would sin by helping him. In his mind, he would be sinning against the law of God. And so it is quite understandable that the priest did not stop to help As far as the rules and regulations were concerned, he did absolutely the right thing. The Lord Jesus now brings the story one step further. He now introduces a Levite. A Levite is not as much encumbered by the rules and regulations, and the repercussions for him would not be as severe. However, also he does not stop to help. He does not want to be inconvenienced either. And not only that, he too does not know whether or not he is dealing here with a fellow Jew or with a despised foreigner. He does not want to transgress the law either. And furthermore, he doesn't know if the robbers are still around. It's better to be saved than sorry. And now the Lord Jesus adds an unexpected element to the story. He introduces a Samaritan. The Samaritan, although close in race and proximity, is hated more than all other foreigners. There's a great hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it is a hatred that has developed over the many centuries. The Jews hated them as much, if not more, than even the Edomites and the Philistines. That's clear from the writings of Ben Sirach, one of the sages whose sayings came to be as authoritative as the scriptures. He stated, there are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir and the Philistines and the stupid people living at Shechem. The latter, of course, refer to the Samaritans. And now the Lord Jesus makes one of those hated Samaritans the hero of the story. For what happens in the story, the Samaritans comes by who does exactly the opposite of what the priest and the Levite do. He has compassion on the man. The word that is used in the text for having compassion is a very strong word. He is visibly moved by this man's deplorable condition. Although the Samaritan cannot be sure of the identity of the man either, he assumes that he is a Jew. After all, he was in Jewish territory on the road between Jerusalem and and Jericho. Now please remember that the Samaritan's contempt for the Jews was as great as the Jews' contempt for them. They hated the Jews as much as the Jews hated them. Nevertheless, he overcame his feelings of hatred and stopped to offer assistance. What does he do? Well, he binds up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own beast and brought him to an inn to take care of him there. He even stayed with him overnight, for he did not leave until the next morning. And before he leaves... He gives the innkeeper some money to make sure that he is looked after and promises to make up the difference if that does not turn out to be enough for his care. The significance of these acts are great, for we must place ourselves into the mindset of that day and of that culture. For the Samaritan to do what he did was very unusual and very brave. For please consider the Samaritan likely had to travel to Jericho to find an inn. For from antiquity we know that there probably were no inns on that road. Whatever the case, wherever he had to bring him, he will have been in enemy territory that is among the Jews. What do you think it would have looked like to the Jews for this Samaritan to ride into town with a badly beaten, half-conscious Jew on his donkey. The Samaritan endangered his very life by his actions, for the Jews were likely to assume that he was somewhat responsible for the man's demise and deal with him accordingly. And you may say, well, that's not logical, for why then would he carry him into town and look after him? Hatred, however, is not rational. Let me give you somewhat of a cultural equivalent scenario and translate this into our American culture of the last century. Suppose an Indian were to come into a western town with a scalped white man on the back of his horse, checking into a room over the local saloon and staying the night with that white man in the same room with him. An Indian so brave and foolish would be fortunate to get out of town alive even if he did save the white man's life. And and so you see how unconcerned this Samaritan was for his own welfare. His concern was only for that helpless and beaten man. He could have just dropped his man at the door of the inn and disappear and that way remain anonymous, but he doesn't. He doesn't mind making himself vulnerable. The Samaritan is willing to pay quite a price for the welfare of another person, of a total stranger, of an enemy. And now the Lord Jesus has this lawyer exactly where he wants him. He asks him, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? A more literal translation would be, which of these three has become your neighbor? For that is what it says in the original Greek. And that is the very point that the Lord Jesus also wants to make. One's neighbor is not someone whom you define beforehand. That's what the Pharisees do. No, your neighbor is he with whom you come into contact, no matter who he is, even if he is your archenemy. When you meet a needy stranger, then he has become your neighbor. And now the lawyer has to give the obvious answer, the Samaritan has become the neighbor. But the lawyer cannot bear to mention him by name. He says, the one who had mercy on him. And now the Lord Jesus is at the point where he wanted to be in the first place. He has come full circle and repeats the line from before he instructed the lawyer with the story. The Lord Jesus says once again, go and do likewise. We come to the the final point. Before the Lord Jesus told this story about the Good Samaritan, the lawyer had been convinced that he was doing exactly what the Lord God commanded and then some. And now it is a completely different ball game. The Lord Jesus has reinterpreted for him who one's neighbor is. One's neighbor is that person whom the Lord God puts on your path, even if that is your hated enemy. That, brothers and sisters, is quite profound. That is a totally new picture for that lawyer. The whole world is now new to him, or at least it should be, for now he no longer can be so smug about his own self-righteousness. Think about it. Who can keep God's laws perfectly? The lawyer couldn't if that's who your neighbor is. For such a consistent application requires a heart which is constantly pure and which is constantly filled with compassion for others. Let me ask you, what do you think? Are you and I able to have such a heart of compassion? Are we able to be that pure We can't, can we? No one can. And yet, perfection is required from us. At least we have to attempt to keep God's law, the law of love. And so we need God, don't we? We need the Lord Jesus. Consider how the Lord Jesus himself fulfilled the law of God to perfection in that regard. Once again, remember the context within which this was written. In Luke 9, verse 51, and following, we read that the Lord Jesus himself, just prior to this, experienced the rejection of the Samaritans, for they would not allow him to stay in their village. Yet now, just after this has happened to him, he does not shrink back from putting the Samaritans in a good light. The Lord Jesus does not share the hatred of his fellow Jews, indeed of his fellow man. The Lord Jesus doesn't hold grudges. And he teaches you and me to do the same. He teaches us to forgive, to be compassionate. That begs me to ask you a question. How do you treat those? Who have become your neighbor? Do you hold grudges? Do you treat some people with contempt? Are you kind to those in the household of faith? Are there certain people here in this building that you can't stand? And what about in your own home? Are you kind to your children, to your wife, to your husband? Do you love the one child or grandchild as much as the other? Do you play favorites? Do you have lists of family members that you like more than others? Well, that's sin. Your family members are your closest neighbors. And what about outsiders? Are you a racist? Do you think that you are better or superior To others? Do you think that if you're not Dutch, you're not much? Even if you say it in joking, do you know how hurtful those remarks are to other people? Do you think that others are the authors of their own misfortune because of their incompetence or that they are beyond help or not worthy of help? How do you treat others? And this parable of the Lord Jesus is not just meant for that lawyer. No, it's meant for me and for you. There's another element here, a very important one. Whose actions do the actions of the Samaritan resemble? Wouldn't you agree that this is the Lord Jesus' actions? And no doubt that will not have been lost on the lawyer and all those who are listening The very things that the Samaritan was doing, the Lord Jesus was doing as well. He bound up the wounds of those who were smarting, for he healed the sick and the lame. That's why he came. He had compassion on the downtrodden of society, and he made himself vulnerable while doing so. He risked his life for the sake of others, even his enemies. In the story of the Good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus is ultimately pointing to himself Those who believed, whose eyes were opened, understood. Do you understand? Do you also see that as a child of God, you are to do likewise? Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, we're all stubborn people. We're set in our way. We have many ways in which we justify ourselves, our thinking, and our actions. But the Lord Jesus always challenges you and me to rethink them. He challenges us to realize the exact thing, demand of his law. And so to be driven to that law. And so to be driven to him. For as you know, we cannot keep the law. And so we have to throw ourselves at the feet of the Lord Jesus. He is the good Samaritan. He will heal us. He will make us whole, for he has paid the price for you and for me. And that is the position that he wanted that lawyer to come to. He wanted him to come to the truth. He wanted him to come to Christ. He wanted the lawyer to seek his salvation, not based on his own works, He wanted him to repent. It doesn't say whether or not he did repent. It doesn't appear that way. And if he didn't repent, it would be because he did not want to concede his own sinfulness and the wrongness of his own position, even though the truth stared him in the face. The truth is now staring you and me in the face as well. Live according to that truth, and then your position will be the same as the Lord Jesus' position it is the position which indicate that you are a legitimate child of God to whom has been given the wonderful inheritance of eternal life amen